While everybody's finding their seat, just a reminder on the uh, things to pray for, really, for Camp Arete, July 14th to 20th. And I think the registrations are going out, going pretty well, right? So uh, they, there's some uh, uh, folks who need a little help paying their, their tuition for camp. But other than that, things are going well for Camp Arete, Vacation Bible School. Dates were changed to July 22nd to the 24th from 9 a.m. until 12 noon. And then um, there's also a need for, for prep school teachers. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to all make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, maintaining our walk with him, our ongoing uh, fellowship, which we enjoy in our uh, walk with the Lord. When we sin, that is broken, but when we confess sin, we are cleansed from all sin, and so we need to make sure we are prepared at all times in our, in our terms of our spiritual life, but especially before we study the Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come to you in times of difficulty and challenge, and, and there are many folks in this congregation that are facing, some facing serious health challenges and problems, and we pray for them and pray for wisdom and their decisions and that, that of their doctors. Father, we also pray for uh, the missionaries that we support. We pray for the Myers as they prepare to come back. We pray for uh, Small Yards. We pray for Ralph LaRosa and others with um, uh, Grace Evangelical Missions. And, Father, we continue to pray for all these folks that their logistical needs would be met and that you would provide for them and that they would have a tremendous uh, ministry opening the eyes of people to the truth of the gospel. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study that we might be challenged by your word, come to understand it better, that we may read it intelligently and accurately that we may be protected against the onslaught of false teaching that we encounter today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, in the last couple of lessons, we've done our introduction. We have oriented ourselves to the uh, overview of Second, uh, Second Peter, and now we are coming to... Uh, get drilled down into the salutation, the opening of this this epistle. Last time we did a uh, one-hour uh, overview of the life of Peter, which should give everybody a, a basic understanding of who he was, his background, his ministry, and uh, God's calling of him along with the uh, other 11 apostles, uh, 11 of whom, not counting Judas, in, and including Peter, would become the um, apostles. And that's what we'll focus on mainly tonight as we get into Second Peter 1.1 1, 1 
and the introduction identifying Peter. Now, there's a lot of times when people are studying the Bible and very little is said about the opening salutation or even the, the conclusions at the end of these epistles. But if we believe that every word is breathed out by God, then there is some significance to why they wrote the way they did and why they included certain things uh, in some epistles which they did not include in others. If you will notice as we read Second Peter 1, 1, he doesn't really identify the, uh, the recipients. That's identified later on in the epistle when he writes that this is the second time he has written to them. He simply introduces himself, Simon Peter. This is distinct from the way he introduced himself in 1 Peter when he just used his name Petros, Peter. Here he uses his, uh, his Hebrew name or Aramaic, or Hebrew name Simon from Shimon, who was, of course, one of the progenitors of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, This was a very common name in the uh, first century. Uh, And this is the only time, really outside of Acts, that he is referred to as with both names, uh, Simon Peter. He says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So there's a few things we need to point out, but we'll begin by just looking at his identification of himself as a bondservant and an apostle. I think it's important that he puts these words together in this order. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle and bondservant, but he puts bondservant first. And I think that's because... There's a recognition that every believer is a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of this word. He is a a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It is the Greek word doulos, which it's interesting. In in English, in uh, in modern English, it's usually translated as servant. But servant, especially if you're influenced by British English, And to some degree, American English has a totally different connotation than what a doulos was in the Greco-Roman Empire. And because of the chattel slavery that was uh, dominant through much of the early part of the history of the United States, and we fought a war between the states over it because of all of the racism and problems that have developed as a result of that, the idea of being a slave has really very heavy negative connotations for an American audience. So there's always uh, some issues related to how do you translate the word uh, doulos. And it's not a word that is at all would bring up to the first century Greco-Roman mind the idea of chattel slavery. It's not the idea of voluntary service that the word servant brings up either. Uh, In the Greek world, the emphasis was really, uh, as a slave, nobody wanted to be a slave. They were the lowest socioeconomic uh, strata of society. Uh, But the emphasis was really on the idea that you had lost your independence. You were no longer independent. You didn't have any personal autonomy 
and your will was completely subordinate to that of someone else. You had no freedom, no liberty. That goes over into the biblical idea of being a slave of Jesus Christ. We're here to serve him, and that's the idea. It is uh, an idea in doulos was that a, a doulos completely, was completely dedicated to the service of his, of his master. But there's another uh, element to this that comes up, and I've got this slide out of order. Here we go is the Old Testament concept of being a servant of the Lord. And this is a phrase that is used numerous times in the Old Testament to refer to a lot of different people. For example, Moses is called the servant of the Lord, and the Hebrew word avad is the word that is predominantly behind the English translation of servant. And it has to do with that. It would be applied to slaves, for example, when the Jews were slaves in Egypt, and the word that was used there in Hebrew was, was avad. But it was also would be a word that was used for a worker, someone who was dependent upon someone else, someone who was employed. A lot of different uh, connotations to it. Well, Moses is called the servant of the Lord in a lot of different passages. Deuteronomy 34.5, Joshua 1.1 and 1.13, and all through, actually all through Joshua Almost every time Moses is referred to, he is called Moses, the servant of the Lord. Again and again and again, Moses, the servant of the Lord. And then that is not restricted to those early books. It's also in Second Chronicles 1.3 and Second Chronicles 24.6, as well as some uh, later pas- passages. But another form is when God speaks, he refers to my servant, Moses. So when a third-person writer is writing and he refers to Moses, he refers to Moses as the servant of the Lord, but the precedent for that is because God had identified Moses as my servant in such passages as Numbers 12, 7 through 8. But this is, seems to be a very high recognition given by the Lord to a number of people in the Old Testament, and not just believers, so that gives you another little twist on it because we would think that in many of these passages, and it's probably true, that it's focusing on the fact that they were an obedient believer and obedient to the Lord. There are a couple of times that unbelievers are identified this way, and that is because they carried out the sovereign plan of God. They did what God wanted them to do in relationship to Israel and not because they were committed necessarily to God or that they even knew that they were doing what God wanted them to do. And that is Nebuchadnezzar, who's the last example. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a believer. Cyrus is called my anointed in the same sense. Cyrus was not a believer. There are a lot of people who have a very superficial view of of the Old Old Testament theology, and they want to look at certain words as always connoting a being a believer, uh, but being a servant of God. And I believe that later Nebuchadnezzar did become a believer, but uh, early on, when he is when this is applied to him, it's because he is carrying out God's will, unbeknownst to him and bringing discipline upon Israel and Judah and destroying 
uh, Jerusalem and the temple and bringing about the fifth cycle of discipline. He's doing what God wanted him to do. And that's the main idea behind all of these images is that someone is the instrument of God in carrying out God's will. You have the phrase, my servant Caleb. Remember, Caleb and Joshua were the only two spies who went in to recon the land and came back and said, we can do it. They're the only two, by the way, that understood what the mission was. Everybody else thought the mission was to go see if they could take the land. And God had already promised them the land numerous times, so they knew the land was theirs. The issue for them wasn't, can we do it? The, the issue was, how are we going to go about it? In other words, developing their uh, strategy and tactics to take the land. So Caleb and Joshua came back and said, we can do it. There may be giants in the land and fortified cities, and there may be a lot of people, but God is the one who will give us the victory. The other, tw- uh, the other 10 said no. So Caleb is viewed as the servant of God. David is called the servant of God so many times. It takes three slides just to list all of the scripture references. These are just a few of them. Second Samuel 3, 18 uh, chapter 7, 5, and 8. What, what's in 2 Samuel 7? Pop quiz. The Davidic covenant. Somebody said it. There you go. We've only been on the D- Davidic covenant for four months on Tuesday night. <laughs> Finding out who's really paying attention and who's catching up on their sleep. First uh, Kings eleven thirteen, Psalm 18 in the super... Uh, script in terms of identifying the author as David, the servant of God. Same thing in Psalm 36. The reason I don't put a verse there is because the superscript doesn't have a number. So Psalm 36 starts, David, my servant, uh, or David, the servant of God. Psalm 89, three passages we're studying now on Tuesday night. Uh, it's in bo- both verse 3 and verse 20 of, cha- of uh, Psalm 89 and Jeremiah thirty three twenty one among many, many others. Job, Gentile, preceded the, or was probably a contemporary of Isaac and Jacob. He is called my servant Job in Job 1, 8 and 2, 3, and Job 42, 7 and 8. Then there's a reference to uh, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah in Isaiah 22, 20. And Israel is referred to numerous times as my servant in the latter part of Isaiah, but specifically in Isaiah 41, 8, and 9, and Isaiah 49, 3. And then uh, Nebuchadnezzar, not in Daniel, but in uh, in Jeremiah 25, 9, and 27, 6. And this is in the same sense as I mentioned earlier, Cyrus is called my anointed. Anointed is somebody who's appointed by God to a mission. Doesn't mean that they are necessarily a believer. And then when we get into the New Testament, we have uh, the passage related to the talents in Matthew chapter 25, 21, and those who were given uh, a certain amount of talents and invested them wisely and saw return on that. In other words, they were obedient to the Lord, carrying out their mission. Their reward, when they part of their reward when they come to uh, come to heaven, is to be uh, commended and it, and and hear the Lord say, "Well done, good and faithful servant." That should be 
our desire is that we serve the Lord with our life faithfully so that when we appear before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, this is how we are commended. Another example of the use of the phrase servant of the Lord, to give you an idea that it's not a demeaning term, is in Philippians 2, 7, and 8 when it is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is a servant of the Lord, and we are to be Christ-like, then we too are to be servants. We are to live our lives in service to the Lord. He uh, made himself of no reputation taking on the form that is the external role of a bondservant, a slave to carry out the mission of God in saving mankind. And this is further described in Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient. So those are characteristics of a servant. They are obedient to their master. And the Lord Jesus Christ is obedient to the Father to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So these are some of the ways that that, uh, the servant of God are used in Scripture. Uh, Furthermore, when we look at the salutations in a number of uh, epistles, Paul refers to himself as a servant of God. He refers to himself and Timothy as servants of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1.1. He refers to himself as a servant in of the Lord in Titus 1.1. And in 1 Timothy 2.24, he uses it to refer to all pastors that pastors are those who are servants of the Lord are expected to be, and then it's followed with a list of some qualifications. So all pastors are expected to serve the Lord faithfully. We know that there are those who don't because they fall into the category of what we will study in chapter 2, the fake teachers and the fake pastors who are teaching fake theology. And unfortunately, that has always been a trend in the church age, and it's going to be uh, certainly a trend today in in the United States, and we've exported it throughout the world. So we have been uh, not only prominent in sending out faithful missionaries, but in the last 20 or 30 years, the missionaries that many of the missionaries have gone out have gone out from the health and wealth uh, charismatics. They have gone out from a number of other groups that are just caring, that are just Uh, promoting their own uh, twisted uh, views on Scripture. James uses it in James 1.1, as does Jude in Jude verse 1. Now, that's interesting because they have a different criteria than anyone else who wrote Scripture. They were uh, half-brothers to the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you would think that someone... Uh, of that background would say, listen to me, I'm Jesus' half-brother. But that's not where their focus is. That would not be genuine humility. That would be uh, uh, a a totally false humility. Here they are just simply referred to as the slaves of Jesus Christ. So this is the word that is used. And the other way in which it's used in Scripture is to refer to the authority of masters, 
even harsh ones. It's described for masters of this in the slave relationship in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 5 through 6. It's used, uh, it's contrasted with free in the passages related to uh, related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, all have been made to drink into one Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, which is what I just quoted, Colossians three eleven, and Galatians three twenty eight, there's always this contrast between Jews or Greeks, male or female, bond or slave. You always find that there. You only see the introduction of male or female in the Galatians uh, 3.28 passage. Now, in Romans 6, Paul has an extended use of the doulos metaphor for the Christian way of life. And it must be remembered when we look at this that because of sin, we're all sinners and we're all born slaves to sin. This is a real problem today if you try to a witness to unbelievers, they really don't have a good idea of sin. They, if they have any idea of sin whatsoever at, at all, they're going to think of it as something really egregious. Often it may be defined in terms of present as socially unacceptable behavior being politically incorrect. That's often happened in the history of the United States. And so today, if you are uh, pro-Trump, if you are a nationalist, if you are uh, against homosexual marriage, then those are the, some of the big sins. There's also other other sins such as being uh, someone who is uh, abusive, whether it's sexual or otherwise. These are the big sins. And so since they haven't committed any of those, then they don't think they're sinners. So we have to carefully explain to people what sin is, that sin is not uh, certain extremely egregious acts. It is any thought, any word, or any deed that violates the righteous character of God. And this can be just depending on our own morality to get credit with God. That is the height of arrogance, and arrogance is at the root of all sin and is present in all sin. And so Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God because we are inherently sinful. And we have passages such as uh, Romans 3:10 and 11. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands there is none who seeks after God. This is a sin nature. That doesn't mean nobody has positive volition. What that mean, means is no one is, uh, no one as an unbeliever is obedient to God. They're not seeking to do God's will. They're seeking to do their own will. No one understands the truth. They are, uh, uh, because of total depravity, they are incapable. They're not enlightened yet. That doesn't come until they trust in Christ as Savior. And at the point of gospel communication, God the Holy Spirit will make the gospel clear to them. And then in Romans 3.23, we have the statement, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we have to start with helping people understand that we're all in bondage. We're all slaves of sin. This is where Paul goes with this in uh, Romans 6.16. 
the challenge there is that the Romans have slipped into a kind of antinomianism where they're thinking, well, I'm, all my sin's been paid for, and I'm a recipient of grace, so I can just keep sinning, and God will forgive me, and I'll just get more grace. And Paul uh, prohibits that, rejects that completely, a very strong statement at the beginning of Romans 6, and says, may it never be. No, not at all. That, that's, that's craziness. That, that's that's uh, Ill, irrational based on what, what we know. And so then he develops what happens with the baptism by the Holy Spirit, that at the instant that we trust in Christ, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and this bondage to the sin nature is broken. And then he gives us illustration. In Romans 6.16, he says, don't you know something? Several times through Romans 6, he keeps saying, don't you know, don't you know, or we know. So it's understanding what happened when we were saved that's important. He says, don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey. In other words, if you're obeying your sin nature, you are presenting yourself to your sin nature to be your master. But because that mastery was broken at salvation, doesn't mean the sin nature was removed, but that tyranny of the sin nature is broken, we now have a true free choice to not sin. Whereas before, when we were spiritually dead, no matter what we did, it came from that single nature of the sin nature. We're spiritually dead. You can do moral, morally good things, but as Paul quoted, in, I quoted a minute ago in Romans 3, 10, and 11, there is none righteous. So nothing that an unbeliever does is good with a capital G. Nothing that an unbeliever does is righteous with a capital R. It may be relative good. It may be a little more moral than the guy down the street. He may have a little better self-control in some areas of his life than the next guy. But when it comes to comparison to the absolute righteousness of God, he falls for short, far short of it. That's what Romans 3.23 is all about. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as we've studied that term, it is a, it's a way in which the Jews would refer to the entire essence of God, that we fall short of the essence of God, of his, of his requirements. So Paul says, here's a general principle. Don't you know if you present yourself to someone uh, as a slave, then you are to obey them. You are uh, that one's slaves uh, to, to obey. And this is true whether we're talking about actual slavery or slavery to sin, whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. Now, the death here is not spiritual death because he's talking to believers. They can't become spiritually dead again, but they can be like they're spiritually dead. We refer to that as carnal death, death that, that, that's a death-like experience where as a believer, you're living like a spiritually dead person. You're thinking like a spiritually dead person. You're acting like a spiritually dead person. And the fruit of that is going to be a life that is, uh, that's, is characterized by a lack of purpose, a lack of meaning. It has no relationship to God. You're living and acting, thinking 
like a spiritually dead person. And what can happen with someone like that is that eventually they become overwhelmed with the despair and with the depression that may come with that, and some may commit suicide. Now, that does not mean that they weren't saved. It means that they weren't living like a saved person. They weren't appropriating that which God had given them, and they are living in rebellion against God, and eventually God turns us over to our sin nature for greater control as part of our divine discipline. And we become uh, more and more miserable. It's just self-induced misery. We become more unhappy. We become more miserable. We end up chasing everything in the world to find happiness, and it gives us no happiness. And so it leads to greater and greater despondency and despair. And that is the sin that leads to death. It is a, a carnal death, a death-like experience. And the, the only other thing we can do is obey God, walk with the Lord, and that leads to righteousness. This is experiential righteousness in our spiritual growth where we uh, grow and we realize the meaning and purpose of life, uh, realize the abundant life that Jesus promised us so that we can have real joy even in the midst of the trials that come. And we live in the devil's world. And God never promises us that life is just going to be wonderful and life is going to be filled with joy. And yet there are many Christians who somehow get that idea. I just um, found out the other day about a situation uh, somewhat close to me. Happened with a friend of mine that I grew up with. We grew up, we were in Sunday school together. We went to Christian camp together uh, we went off to college together, and he knew all the basic promises, all the doctrine, everything like that, but he was in rebellion against the authority of his parents. He dropped out of college after the first year, and then he went to, um, in fact, now that I'm thinking about it, his mother drove us to Wednesday night teen class every week for five years. So he had all the doctrine he needed, understood it, rebelled against it, uh, dropped out of college after he transferred back to U of H, became a heroin addict, and it ruined his life. And about six, somehow four or five years later, he managed to turn his life around, but it was all morality. And then he moved to uh, another state, another town, and he, uh, while he was there, he got back with the Lord, started going to a fairly decent church, met a wonderful woman, and uh, he had uh, become a leader in several uh, Bible studies that he was teaching and had a seemingly a very solid spiritual life for about 10 or 12 years. Uh, he and the woman that he met got married, flew me up there to marry them, and then something was gnawing at him because life wasn't what he thought God owed him. And so what happened is that he, he began to drift from the Lord. He wasn't ever happy with the career he chose or the job he had. And so now he's looking to the details of life for meaning and purpose and happiness, and that didn't provide it. So he just chucked God. Who needs God? He's not going to give me a life of meaning and happiness and purpose. Well, that's because you're not walking with the Lord 
as you thought, you're still filled with just as much arrogance, and I can say this because I've known him since we were little boys, just as much arrogance as you ever were that dominated your sin nature and you just gave rise to it. And it just happened the other night, I was having my usual middle age insomnia, some of you know what that's like, and I was up and I was reading through some stuff and I ran across, I was looking at an old book I had from college and I ran across a paper in that book that had his name on it. I thought, you know, I haven't heard from him in a long time. I, I, I need to get on the internet and, and find him. So I put his full name in. First document I opened was his obituary. He died in 19, I mean in 2015. He had been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's when he was about 54 years old. And he just made life miserable for everybody everybody around him. I did get in touch with his widow and I got in touch with his brother and got the whole story. But it's just a sad story that we have Christians who just don't really want to submit to the authority of God in their life and in their walk. And they expect God to give them things. Now, this wasn't a guy who ever succumbed to anything like the health and wealth gospel of the, of the crazy Maddox. But he did think this same idea that somehow because I'm doing what God wants me to do, he owes me something that he identified as happiness, but he was defining what that happiness is. And I have to warn you that in this life, we're going to face a lot of crises, some more than others, some in areas that you won't ever see. I heard somebody make this comment about 20 years ago sitting in church and said, you'd be surprised how many people who are sitting here have had incredibly tragic things happen to them. Children who have died in horrible accidents, children who have died from horrible diseases. Uh, you see people in the audience, and some men, businessmen who look very successful, have lost fortunes more than once. All of these kinds of things that happen to us, some people here are struggling with with debilitating disease, but they're here night after night after night because their happiness isn't in those details of life, whether it's health or whether it's financial success or whether it is professional or business recognition or whether it's family or friends or whatever it might be. Our happiness is in our relationship with the Lord, and that is what enables us to surmount all the garbage that goes on around us. But the key comes back to Romans 6.16. We have to recognize that we are to be a slave to righteousness and not a slave to our sin nature. And a lot of people just are just slaves to sin nature. They become believers, and they're really good at camouflaging it and dressing it up. And in Romans 6.17, Paul goes on to say, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin when they were unbelievers, you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So he's talking about that positional shift that took place, but it could also apply to the fact that as believers in their ongoing spiritual growth, they were choosing to be obedient to the Lord rather than disobedient, and so they have continued... Uh, to obey and to experience that richness that comes, you may not be able to exercise your free will. There are a lot of people who say, I have to have my free will. 
What this passage is saying is you've never had free will, Betty. Never. You never have, you never will. You were born a slave to sin. And the only option you have is when you trust in Christ, you become a slave to the Lord. But those are the only options. You're going to be a slave. A slave to yourself and your sin nature or a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pick your option. Which one do you think is going to come out better in the long run? And that's what Paul is saying here. And he goes on in Romans 6.18 to say, And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's our new position. Our experience needs to match up with it. And he says in verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. That is your sin nature. We're weak. Our default position is always to go with the arrogance and the self-absorption of our sin nature. And then he says, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness <coughs> and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And the sense there in that command is it's an aorist imperative, and it means to make this a priority. It doesn't mean it's a one-shot decision. Some people have taught that, and that's a bad use of the Greek. I even know a really well-known Greek scholar that I have great respect for, and he missed the boat on, on the grammar on this. It's the same as in Romans uh, 12.1, present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's not a one-shot deal. It is a continuous thing, but it's, the, it's stated that way as a priority, that every day we wake up, am I going to be a slave to my, to my sin nature today, or am I going to be a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ? And we have to make that decision about every 20, 30 minutes or so, sometimes more frequently depending on where you are on your uh, spiritual scale, but it's an ongoing thing. So uh, Peter starts off saying that he is a bond slave first because as a believer, based on what Paul is saying here, we need to have that in place. We are, at the point of our salvation, we are positionally a bond slave, a slave to Jesus Christ. And the issue is, are we going to make that experientially true? Peter, of course, had done that. The second thing that he mentions is that he is an apostle that he is an apostle, and we need to take a little time to study what the Bible teaches about apostleship because there are a lot of people who don't understand that. He is specifically saying he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that means that something different, that there are different categories of apostleship when we get into the New Testament. So we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about apostleship because I find that people get confused about this. Not necessarily anybody here, but I constantly run into this, and you'll see it in the broader spectrum. I know of uh, pastors. I've even spoken at the church of one pastor here in Houston, I think, who claims to be an apostle. And there are others who are out there claiming to be apostles. And if you talk to Jim Myers, you talk to Moses Onwabiko, you talk to a number of others of these evangelists and Bible teachers who go to Africa, they run into lots of apostles of Jesus Christ. And so this is just a lot of confusion. By the way, there are a lot of Africans that uh, tune in. They either live stream or they get videos 
uh, off of the website, and we get a certain amount of correspondence from them. So we, we just have a, a worldwide missions ministry right here through the Internet. It's, become, it's a great tool for evil, but it is also a tremendous tool that can be used for communicating the truth. So first of all, let's look at the word itself. The word that is translated or actually just transliterated into English is the word apostle from the Greek word apostolos. And the focus really is on authority, that this is a person who has been given a commission. They have been assigned a mission from someone in greater authority and they have received the delegation of that authority from someone higher. That's the main idea. So behind this idea is the idea of authority and that those who were designated as the apostles of Jesus Christ in the New Testament were given the authority by the Lord Jesus Christ to lay the foundation for what has become the church of Jesus Christ. We'll get into those details in a minute, but when we look at the word, we see that it it was used in a number of different ways in classical Greek. It was used sometimes to describe a dispatch, as something that was sent. That's the root meaning of the verb, is something is sent. And it has the idea of something that is uh, sent that is dispatched. And so sometimes it applied to a, a, a written set of orders. Other times it would apply to a commander of a military or naval operation or even the governor of a Greek colony. So in each of those you see that even in the, if it's an, a letter or it's a written set of orders, behind it is the idea of someone in authority uh, giving someone a, a mission. In the New Testament, it is someone who is officially commissioned by an authorized agent and given the authority to perform a task. Now, the issue, as we're going to see in a minute, is who's the agent? Who's giving the commission? Because you have the Lord Jesus Christ who gives a commission to the eleven. And you have churches who gave commissions to missionaries. Okay, so you always have to identify who sent whom, where, and what's, the, what's their mission. So that, that's, that's important. That's what we're getting at here. So it's, in the New Testament, we'll see that this is used in a technical sense to refer to both an office and a spiritual gift that were restricted to the 11 plus the Apostle Paul, and then you have the um, then you have a general sense that it's used to describe certain missionaries sent out from a local church. Okay, they, so they're not apostle with the capital A; they're apostle with the lower case A. So technically, you could say you could refer to missionaries as apostles. The problem is that gets confusing, and that's really a dangerous thing to do in light of other things that are going on. We see that the verb apostello is first used in Mark 3.14, and the noun is in Matthew 10.2 and Luke 6.13. Those are roughly parables. So let's just look at these 
These are used of the 12 that are sent out. That's Matthew 3.14, the 12 that are sent out. That's the verbal action. But remember, this is still in the age of Israel. It's in the dispensation of the Messiah. Uh, and so it's not talking about the church age spiritual gift or office. Mark 3.14 says, Then he, that is Jesus, appointed 12 and called them apostles. Now, that phrase, and called them apostles, may show up in your New American Standard Bible, your NET, your NIV, your ESV, but it is not in the King James Version. It's not in the authorized version because it's not in the, and it's not in the majority text. That's really what matters. It's not a King James only thing. It's that the text underlying the King James Bible was only about eight manuscripts, and they weren't old manuscripts. There were only eight manuscripts, but they were representative of a much, 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 much larger, uh, we're talking about thousands of manuscripts larger uh, collection that became known as the majority text. But the eight or nine of those, uh, uh, those documents that were used in the in the authorized version or in what was called the received text, uh, Textus Receptus, they, they were corrupt in a lot of different places. So the Textus Receptus, if you're following me, which is those seven or eight, nine manuscripts that were used as the basis for uh, the King James translation, they represented a larger group, but they were not identical with the larger group called the majority text. So what's interesting is when I was teaching through Revelation that unlike the other 26 books of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, almost 90% of the time, the textual, the um, the received text, the Textus Receptus, uh, disagrees with the majority text and the majority text agrees with the critical text. It's, not, it's the opposite in the rest of the New Testament. In the rest of the New Testament, the Textus Receptus agrees mostly with the majority text, with a few variants. So anyway, that gets into a lot of technicalities, but it's doubtful that and called them apostles in Mark 3.14 is in the original. And then, then we read that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. He might apostello them. That's that the verb form. So it basically means to be sent out, and the mission was to proclaim a message. What was the message that they were proclaiming at the early years of the ministry? That's a pop quiz on Matthew. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So... That's the verb form. They're sent out. Jesus is sending them. He's sending them on a mission to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. This is in the age of Israel. It's in the dispensation of the Messiah. In Matthew 10, 2, not a parallel passage at all, he says, now the names of the 12 apostles are these. This is what's known as an anachronism. An anachronism is when you have a place name, such as New Amsterdam, and later on in history, it gets a different name, such a, which is the case here, it becomes New York, but then somebody writes about that location in the 17th century and calls it New York. 
because most people today don't recognize that New Amsterdam was the original name of, of New York. So um, that's an anachronism. So they were disciples at this point in Matthew 10, but because later they became apostles, Matthew writes and uses the term apostolos as an anachronism. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these, and then he lists them. Luke 6, 13, uh, we read, When it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. So Luke is looking back, and he says he called them. They were disciples, and later he called them apostles. But not that wasn't the term that was originally used. So the significant title is for those who had been part of the 12 minus Judas Iscariot. Jesus is referred to in one passage as the apostle of our faith. It's never used of Jesus anywhere else, just in this one passage I have up on the screen, Hebrews 3.1. But it is clear from his statements in the Gospel of John and uh, Gospels in Mark 9.37, Matthew 15.24, Luke 10.16, John 5.36, that he was sent by the Father. The Father has sent me. What's the Greek word for sent? Apostello. So Jesus understood that he was commissioned by the Father to come and become incarnate, become add humanity to his deity and go to the cross. That was his mission. So he is identified here as the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. A confession is not like confession of sin. It is a, an admission or acknowledgement of what we, what we believe. This is the only place the term is applied to Jesus and it connects his mission as the sent one from God with his high priestly ministry, and that's where it fits within the, with, within the argument of Hebrews at that point. Uh, Moses was called an apostello in the Septuagint. Uh, the Hebrew word was shaliach, which is still a word that's in use today. Some of you remember I've had a uh, a man from uh, the Jewish Agency for Israel come and speak a few times at, at conferences and named Idan Pesachovich. And he, when I met him, he was the shaliach for Jaffe, for Ukraine, the one sent out as a, uh, with a mission, and that is to regather Jews and bring them back uh, to Israel. So that's, that's the idea. Jesus was sent out by the Father, and that's connected to his high priestly ministry in Hebrews uh, 3.1. And we look at the uses of these words. The noun is used 79 times in the New Testament. In some of them, it's, it's used in a more generic sense, and others a more specific sense of the office of one of the uh, 12 or one of the 11. It's used 66 times in Acts and the Epistles. The verb is used 130 times, but most of those are just general. So-and-so sent out or they were sent out or just, just talking about somebody making movement from one place uh, to another. 
So that just gives you a little background on the word and the terminology. But the key issue in defining the usage is determining, first of all, who's doing the sending. God sent Jesus. So God does the sending. Jesus is the one who is sent, and he has a mission, and it's distinct from the mission given to others. You have Jesus Christ sending out the 12, which includes an unbeliever, to go to the 12 tribes of Israel, and they are to preach the gospel of the kingdom. That's not the same as what's going on today. So they're not a, that, that wasn't related to their church age apostolic ministry. In the church age, there are the 11 plus Paul who are sent out. And they're sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ who commissions them. There are certain qualifications that, that had to be met. It wasn't just that the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, could choose them, but they had to fit qualifications. They had to have, number one, they had to be commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, they had to be witnesses of the resurrection. And, of course, you could add they had to be believers, which is why Judas had been removed from their company back in John chapter 13. So you have to identify the mission. The mission of Jesus is to come to the cross. The mission of the 12 that are sent to the house of Israel is to preach the gospel of the kingdom. The mission of the church-age apostles is to lay the foundation for the church itself, the body of Christ, through the teaching of the word and explanation of the word and taking the gospel and making disciples by, teach, by, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that Jesus taught, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. So you have to also determine when does this sending occur. There's that group that's sent out in the Gospels, which is another dispensation, or in the church age. So those are the questions that have to be addressed. The sixth thing that we have to talk about is that the, term, the gift of apostle as well as the office of apostle, in this sense the two are tied together. Today you can have those with the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher, but they, don't, they may or may not have the office of pastor-teacher. I have the gift and the office of pastor-teacher of West Houston Bible Church. There was a time when I was ordained and I did not have a church. After my first church, there was a time when I was not in the office of pastor. I taught Bible studies. I taught in, at uh, College of Biblical Studies. I did other things of that nature, but I was not a pastor of a church. Then there was a time again when I was the pastor of another church. So you can have the spiritual gift that's recognized through ordination, but if they don't have a church, then they're just a pastor without portfolio. They don't have that uh, office at that time. So in first, uh, we get into this issue of temporary spiritual gift, and we're going to look at a couple of passages here. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it's identified in a passage that is focused on spiritual gifts and, and talking about them. It is among a list of spiritual gifts in, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 20, uh, 28. That's just, I'll just look at that to begin with. 
gives one list. Of, there's several different lists of spiritual gifts. They're not all identical. But here Paul says in verse 28, God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Now that first, second, third seems to indicate a priority of significance in the body of Christ. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, then you just have this list, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Now, tongues is not a good translation. It should be languages. It was human languages. There's no such thing as angelic languages uh, in, in, in terms of a prayer language. I'm always reminded of people that I've talked to who have said, well, I pray in tongues and God answers my prayers more effective. I'm more effective when I pray in tongues. And the natural question from that should be, well, really, when you're praying in tongues, you know what you're praying for? You understand what you're saying? No. Well, how do you know that you got the answer to your prayer if you don't know what you prayed for? It's languages. They were human languages, and that's what it's demonstrated throughout Scripture. So you have these gifts. Now, healings and languages, miracles, healings, and languages are all temporary gifts. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so is apostle and prophet. These were temporary gifts that were necessary at the beginning of the church age when you did not have a New Testament Scripture when you did not have a canon of Scripture or any collections thereof. By the end of the first century, you had some collections that contained, they didn't contain all of the 27 books of the New Testament, but they might have contained 10 or 15. And by 150, you had probably uh, 20 to 25 uh, in a collection. So uh, as the, the New Testament came together, it was less and less necessary to have anybody who could communicate through special revelation because they had the content already provided for them. Now, the passage that we go to to show the temporary nature of these gifts is in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, and I'm just going to run us through that very, very rapidly. I've got more extensive analysis of this in other places, but after seven verses of talking about the priority of biblical love and describing biblical love, uh, Paul concludes by saying in verse 8, love never fails. And then he's going to contrast biblical love. And remember, in John 13, uh, 34 and 35, Jesus said, by this, that is love, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He doesn't say by speaking in tongues. He doesn't say by healing. He doesn't say by miraculous signs. He says by love, biblical love for one another. So here he says whether there are prophecies, they will be done away with. Now, love never fails. It's not going to ever be done away with. It is eternal. There will be love in heaven. And he contrasts that with these spiritual gifts. He says whether there are prophecies, they will be done away with. Literally in the Greek, it's they will be abolished. They will be, there, there will come a time when they're, they're stopped. Then the second is tongues. 
Now, it shifts with tongues. It uses a different verb, and it uses a different, uh, a different voice. And the indication is that it's just going to die out. It's, it's not going to have something that is definitely going to abolish it, that will happen that will abolish it. It's just not going to be necessary anymore, so it's just going to disappear. And then it says, knowledge, it will be done away with. Now, I want you to notice something. Skip verse 9 and look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, but when that which is perfect has come, then, the then means when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away. Done away in verse 10 and done away twice in verse 8 all reflect the same Greek word. In other words, something is going to come that is identified as the perfect, and when that happens, then that which is partial is going to be abolished. It's going to be done away with. Now, what's partial? Verse 9, knowledge and prophecy. These are spiritual gifts. That's what's mentioned in verse 8. It's a beautiful structure here. Prophecies will be done away with. Prophecies are in part. Knowledge will be done away with. Knowledge in part. Notice it's prophecy is A. Knowledge is B. Then we have a statement about A, a statement about B, a statement about B, and a statement about A. It's a nice literary structure called the chiasm. So Paul is very organized in the way he's presenting this, and he talks about that which is partial and that which is... And then, then, there's, then there's tongues. It's not partial. But the implication is that when this thing called the perfect has come then what is in part will be done away with. That is going to happen after the tongue ceases, okay? Now, a lot of people talk about what is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect, okay? That's Scripture. James uses it the same way, talks about the, the law of the Lord is the perfect law of the Lord. The term the perfect means that which is complete, so it's talking about something which is complete in contrast to something which is incomplete, okay? What's incomplete? Knowledge only gives incomplete, the spiritual gift of knowledge. You have this person over here in California. They have a revelation from God. This is in the early period of the church before they have anything written down. They get direct revelation from God, specific revelation from God, but they don't have the whole picture. But it's necessary for whatever crisis is happening over there. And, and then there's prophecy, and that's partial. So you have somebody else somewhere else, and it's partial. It's incomplete because you don't have the whole canon, the whole collection of the 27 books that have come together. So what happens is when the spiritual gift of knowledge, which only gives you a little bit of this, and prophecy gives you a little bit over here, those are replaced when something that is complete replaces something that is incomplete, okay? See, the language here is not always consistent, so people lose the, the, the flow of thought that's here. So the, that which is perfect or that which is complete replaces that which is incomplete. So it's very clear that knowledge and, pro and, and prophecy, which were revelatory gifts, 
part of the uh, temporary gifts in the early church, that they're considered to be incomplete, and they're not going to last that long. Neither is tongues. So apostle is also another gift that is not going to last long. It was a foundational gift, as we're going to see in a little while. Foundational gift, a foundation is only laid once. Even if you have a 50-story building, how many foundations are there? There's one foundation. So the apostles and prophets lay the foundation in the early church. Now we continue in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, Paul gives one illustration related to growth. What he's saying here is that there's one thing needed when you're a child. Everybody here probably had something like Gerber's baby food when they were an infant. But by the time you were three or four, you were off the baby food. You were on to something, something else. Now, you may not have been sitting down to a prime rib dinner. You might not have been uh, chowing down on the uh, tamale plate at your favorite Mexican restaurant. might have been too spicy for you. But you were eating more adult food. Then by the time you're 15 or 16, you're eating something quite different. You've de- you're developing a palate. You still don't have the palate you may have when you're in your 20s and 30s, but you're eating a, a different level of food. So that's what uh, Paul is using this in relation to knowledge, and he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I just sort of babbled and prattled and didn't even have good grammar. I understood as a child at a very elementary level. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish thoughts. So this is the analogy that's put on the church. In the early part of the church, when they have an incomplete revelation from God, an incomplete New Testament, they're like a child. But once they get the complete New Testament, they're like an adult because they have the knowledge that they need. They may not understand it. That's the purpose for the rest of the church age is to figure it all out. But they they have it. And then he skips to another illustration. He says, for now, and he uses this word arty in the Greek, now. And this has a, there's going to be another word that he uses for now at the last verse, and now, and this is the Greek word nuni. Now, these words overlap in meaning, okay? They're not exactly synonymous. When they are used in the same context, back up. There we go. When they're used in the same context, now means right now during this immediate period of time, and Nuni talks about in a broad sense of time. So Paul is saying here, for now, we see through a mirror, and literally in the Greek, it's enigmatically. Why is it enigmatic? In a mirror, what are you looking at? See, uh, Old King James translated, we see through a glass darkly. And that's like we're looking through a, you know, smoky glass or something. And, and you've seen very old glass that's all sort of warped and you can't really see through it. And everything's distorted. That's not what it's talking about. It's using a word for a mirror. What do you see when you look in a mirror? You look at yourself. The Bible is described as a mirror in James that there are many people who look in a mirror and ignore what it says and go on. Are you going to look in the mirror of the Word of God and ignore it and not apply what what you're seeing? So that's the idea here. Now, 
Paul is saying, now in this apostolic period, when we don't have a complete canon of Scripture, we see in a mirror enigmatically because we don't have all the pieces. You've got one gospel, you've got a couple of epistles, you've got maybe, you don't have any of the general epistles yet, you don't have revelation, so it's an incomplete mirror, so it's still somewhat puzzling as to how it all fits together. But then face-to-face... I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I would have you think in your mind, what do you normally think of as face-to-face? Well, so-and-so died last week, now they're face-to-face. We think of face-to-face as face-to-face with Jesus. It's not what this is talking about. Don't read Jesus into this. In the Old Testament, Moses is talking to God, and God said, he said, first of all, he said, I don't speak to you enigmatically. So see, that's, that's, that, that, that's part of this, seeing through a mirror enigmatically. It borrows that imagery from back in Numbers. And then God says, I don't speak with the others like I speak to you, Moses. I speak to you mouth to mouth, face to face. So it's talking about revelatory uh, revelatory procedures. So what it's talking about here is now we, we see in a mirror enigmatically, we don't have the whole picture, but then, then what? Then when the perfect comes, then we, it, we will see face to face with the scripture. We'll see a whole complete picture of who we are. We'll have the sufficient scripture because it'll be complete. And then he says, now I know in part why? Because knowledge is partial and prophecy is partial. So this first part deals with prophecy because of that whole allusion to Moses and God speaking to him. And the second part says, now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. He's not talking about being in heaven. And I'll tell you why in this last verse. He says, and now, that is now in this church age, in contrast to the immediate now, now in the church age, what continues is faith, hope, and love, these three. Now, there are a lot of people who say that because it's face-to-face here, the now is during this life, everything's a puzzle, everything's enigmatic, but then when we're face-to-face, we will be known even as I am known. And so the then in that view is when you're face-to-face with the Lord. Maybe it's the rapture, maybe when you die, maybe the second coming, but when you leave this life and you're in heaven, you're going to be seen as you are, according to them, and uh, you're going to be in the then period. But the now of verse 13 says, but now abide faith, hope, and love. They continue whereas the prophecy and the knowledge has ceased. Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. Now is still in this life, Okay. It can't be heaven. It can't be heaven. Why? Because faith and hope are limited to this life. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If faith to, fa- if faith to, face, is faith to face with Jesus, then we're not operating on faith anymore. We're operating on sight. But Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is not based on sight. Romans 8.24 and 25 says that hope is, is not based on sight either. For we were saved in this hope, 
But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? In other words, faith and hope can't be after you are face-to-face with Jesus because then it's sight. And when it's sight, it's no longer faith and it's no longer hope. So when, when Paul says, but now abide faith, hope, and love, he's got to be talking about in this life. So we have a, a now period that ends when the perfect comes, when we're no longer knowing and understanding and prophesying partially because something complete has come, And then there's a broader now when those temporary gifts have ended and what dominates is faith, hope, and love. The point I'm making here is that the gift of apostle was a temporary gift. It's it's a temporary gift by its design and purpose, and it was a temporary gift because part of its criterion was that a person saw the resurrected Jesus and was directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. So that means that none of the apostles, so-called apostles today, fit that category. Well, we have really run out of time, so let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded of the significance of the gift and the office of an apostle directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ and a unique gift for laying the foundation of the church. Father, we thank you that as such we recognize that those who wrote in the New Testament, either as apostles or those under apostolic authority, are writing your very words with your authority behind them. And thus we are to obey them as a good slave should. Father, we pray you challenge us with all these things in Christ's name. Amen.